Hey everybody, this is Yuri Kruman. I'm the host of Commander-in-Chief Podcast. As you guys know from uh, listening to other episodes, we interview some very, very interesting people. And uh, usually we talk about, you know, well, how I built, you know, this one company or, you know, how I turned this field upside down. But it's not that often that we get the pleasure and uh, honor of speaking to someone who has done this with not one, not two, not three, five, or 10, but something like 50 companies. So I'm very excited today to speak with Brian Smith of IA Business Advisors. I'm going to let uh, Brian do his own introduction. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Yuri. Um, uh, yeah, as you said, uh, I am the managing partner or the owner of IA Business Advisors and you know, from a very high level, we are a management consulting firm uh, that provides services to a small and medium-sized business, but we also have uh, a private equity arm. Mm -hmm. And within that private equity arm, we have 43 current companies that are in our portfolio. So, um, and as you noted, I've been involved in starting actually more than 50 companies in my career over the last 30 plus years. Very cool. Um, yeah, that's that's a little bit different perspective, right? When you're talking about uh, BCP, any of that sort of thing. But, you know, you're also clearly not someone who just sort of sits in a corner office and, you know, listens to pitches all day, right? You're also someone who's built many companies. You've been an operator of every sort. And I, I don't know that your LinkedIn is really the most detailed thing in the world that I've seen. So I'd, I'd love to I'd love to just, you know, hear your story. How, how did you get started in this? I mean, management consulting is a very wide swath a very wide umbrella, um, as is coaching for that matter. So I'd love to, you know, a lot of people kind of, let's say, create companies, they run them, they maybe hire talent, et cetera. And at some point they say, you know what? Okay, I've learned some really valuable principles. Maybe I'll write a book about that. Maybe I'll do some coaching about that. Uh, maybe I'm going to start a management consulting firm. Right, so maybe give us give us a little bit deeper sense of your experience, where you started, and how you kind of got to this place where you're doing what you do today. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. My entrepreneurial spirit actually began when I was a kid. Um, it started, I mean, to really hit home in high school. Um, as a high school student, I worked at a fast food restaurant, like many of us do. Mm -hmm. But I was growing up in Southern California, and uh, I grew up, uh, I wouldn't say poor, but on the lower end of a middle class uh, uh, family. And so I knew what working hard was. So I actually started detailing cars on the weekends. I also uh, cleaned an office building that I was paid for once a month. And I did all of that while I was in high school. And um, I was the CFO of our junior achievement uh, class in high school, and you would have thought that that would have uh, led me right into college and everything else, but it didn't. Life took me in a different way. I ended up in the military, um, learned a lot about organization, learned a lot about leadership as a soldier. Um, always wanted to be an accountant, um, and earned my accounting degree, went to work for a big six accounting firm, and I absolutely hated it. Um, it was the bureaucracy, just being stuck in an office, working with numbers, just wasn't what I thought being an accountant was going to mm -hmm. be. This was in uh, 
the late 80s, early 90s, my first gig or my first job coming out of working for that big six firm was implementing a computerized accounting system for a small manufacturing company. And the bug bit me. Um, I loved it. And I started doing that for small businesses. And this is back in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, when computerized accounting systems uh, for small business were not the norm. They were expensive. They were con uh, complicated. They were convoluted. It wasn't like buying a QuickBooks or a FreshBooks. There was a lot that went to it. The first system I did for one company was bigger than this desk. And it was crazy. That led me to doing a lot of that. Um, I had, uh, my family was in the restaurant business and the hospitality business and POS systems were becoming more affordable because of PCs. And I started doing that. It really grew from there, my career. So by that, I mean, we just did ERPs and accounting systems and we learned networking and, um, we started hiring employees, and quite frankly, it was like a bull in a china shop by the seat of our pants. Um, I sold that company in 1995 to a larger consulting firm. Um, we did very well. Um, you can imagine being an early en entry company into desktop accounting systems afforded us rapid growth and a decent reputation. Um, I went to work for a public uh, oil exploration company, designing their accounting system worldwide, preparing them for worldwide uh, expansion. And I really cut my teeth on management consulting and on business process and on the human interaction and change management during those years uh, with 3D. And went through two IPOs. Uh, bought companies all over the world, traveled all over the world, and uh, that company was eventually bought out. Um, during that time is when I started IA, which is, our long name is Individual Advantages, and it's still our legal name today. We're still a Colorado company founded in 96, but I started it as a think tank to actually try to understand how technology was affecting humans and how technology was affecting business process and how you can integrate those together. And in, being in the mid nineties, we still didn't have the internet as a regular way of communication. We still didn't have WANs and high speed uh, communication systems and smartphones. We were still cutting our teeth on how all of this was gonna work together. I went back to school, got a master's degree in, in computer information systems. I started a, a Microsoft networking company to support our accounting work because every accounting system had to have a platform to sit on, had to have a network to sit on. And basically, we grew from that. Um, the more I dealt with humans, the more I learned that humans influence almost everything we are in turn influenced by what we use. I went back to school again, got my doctorate in organizational psychology. And the rest is kind of, you know, like they say, history. We developed a reputation for being able to commingle people, process technology and ideas together in a way that helped people understand how they worked. And 
our company is born out of that history of understanding and our ability to commingle all of those things together and make them work in concert with one another. And over the years, we've continued to expand on that, build on that. Whenever we've had an opportunity to provide services for somebody and they couldn't afford our services, uh, we offered them uh, the ability to work with us and get stock or ownership instead of cash. Mm -hmm. And our portfolio started to grow. And as we grew our, por our portfolio and our influence within those portfolios, we started to do cash acquisitions that helped grow those small portfolios. And by that, I mean, we have a small, por small portfolio in construction. We have a portfolio in data management. We have a portfolio in professional services. And as those portfolios had a need, um, we would go out and expand it. All the while, IA would provide the oversight and the management and the glue that kept it all together. And at the end of that, over the last few years, we've written two of our own books. We have our third coming out next year. Um, and our books really speak to what our beliefs are, and that is that every human uh, matters and that every human has influence and that our influence as a human is our largest responsibility. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's that's you know that's a rather unique perspective um, because again you're not you're not sort of in something day to day that's very narrow. You're always looking across um, different companies in your portfolio. Also, you know you have multiple layers. You're thinking about systems, processes, how people interact, and you know, organizational dynamics as well. So I'd love to maybe if you could share with us a little bit um, from your books, maybe a little bit something around. You know what what you write in there, and what what do you think might be some unique um, insights for our listeners that they may not have come across in in any other any other books in management or business? Yeah, I think, and, and it's not that everything or even anything that we write is highly unique. I mean, the mm -hmm. stories that we use to tell yeah, it's... what is is are, are unique, but you know our concepts. Uh, most of us that are in this world, you and I. And those of us that influence, uh, those that influence both you and I and others, we all come from the same place. And I think the number one lesson in our books that we start with is that each of us is important um, and that uh, I am we. And what I mean by that is that I am made up of all of the people who have influenced me to this moment in time. Um, that's up to and including before we met. You know, right before we went on and, and had this conversation, mm -hmm. I am continuously evolving by the we in my life and the experiences that I have. And to be able to understand what that means, we teach people to slow down and to always have focus and to live in a current moment. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean we don't have goals and that we don't plan ahead, but it means that we plan ahead so that we can slow down, live in the moment and make very good decisions. And uh, it's hard to do that in today's fast-paced world with technology and smartphones and all of the things that are coming at us so quickly and the demand to make decisions so fast, either for self or for those that we influence. It's amazingly difficult to slow down. But when we do, we find that we understand 
where we're at better, we make better decisions. And I think if anybody challenged themselves to really think about the time they made their best decisions is when they slowed down and the world became in focus and they actually had clarity on what they were doing. The other thing we teach is known to a lot, most people is smart goals are something that we like. We actually like to take that a step farther and we turn smart into an adjective. We teach our clients and our, our peers and everybody that we work with in all organizations that smart's a verb. It's in our thought processes, it's in our actions. We're always specific. Everything we do is measurable. Um, we're looking to attain, or what we do, we can attain. It's realistic and it's timely. And we teach people how to do that in a ongoing present way in everything that we do, because it's a very good self-check before you take the next step in almost anything. That includes goal setting and any action that you might take. So thank you, thank you for sharing that. Um, I think it would be really great if we could perhaps go a little bit deeper into a specific story. And of course, you don't have to give specific names, but I'm thinking of this from the angle of, let's say, due diligence. If you're in private equity, I mean, hell, if you're doing business in any capacity, you have to be able to do due diligence. If you're someone who has all of those layers in place, right, that's your life philosophy, that's your worldview, that's your way of, you know, figuring out, hey, do I want to do business with this person? Is this industry, company, stage, whatever, fitting within the criteria that I care about. So um, often the, the most telling um, principles come out when something doesn't work out, as opposed to when it's like, oh, well, yeah, that's great. Awesome. Welcome to the family, right? That's, that's great. It doesn't always teach much. So perhaps you could, you could share with us um, one time where, I don't know, maybe you were looking into an acquisition or you know, some other M&A situation and something maybe came out because of your particular system that you know blew up the whole thing sure um and there's a lot of examples yuri um our due diligence uh model when it comes to the technical aspects is very similar to almost any accountant or private equity equity or m a firm i mean you're looking mm -hmm. at bank accounts and numbers and markets and things like that where IA comes into play more often than not in the M&A world is when it comes to the human acquisition, mm -hmm. the team acquisition, and where we almost always see deals fall apart is when humans have conflict. And that could be on the terms of an agreement, which is usually easy to overcome. Yep. What's more difficult is when you take multiple personalities and you put them together, you take multiple cultures and you put them together and they create conflict. And that conflict wasn't identified at all prior to the you know finalization of that merger or acquisition. Mm -hmm. We have had a number of cases like that. Um, I'll give you some examples of where we resolved them where they didn't fail. We've been brought in uh, to family disputes where they just can't work out how a succession is going to happen. And we've been brought in by some of the largest firms that do that because they've spent 12, 18 months uh, trying to get these family members to ratify a succession plan that would allow 
the next generation to take over. And our approach is just like I shared with you, slow the process down, identify the conflicts up front, identify the culture gaps that may be generational, they may be educational, they may be systemic. Get them all laid out in front of everybody and then we write a very present program to overcome them in a way that we feel works. And I can't tell you there's a magic check mark. You have to be in that environment, but it works when you slow everything down, you put everybody together, and you actually are transparent about conflict, transparent about differences, transparent about uh, even uh, things you like and don't like, and then you talk about them instead of try to win them over or overcome them. And we have found that our method of doing that just works, but it starts with slowing it down so that you can identify them and you can address each party's individual perception, each party's individual place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't overcome emotion most of the time. Uh, but what you can overcome with humans is that most humans have empathy. Most humans want to win one way or the other, and they also want to move forward. They don't want to move backwards. And when you get people to realize that and slow down enough to realize that, they can overcome a lot of the internal conflict that has been put up, the barriers that are put up that oftentimes stall succession plans or mergers or acquisitions. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, reminding me a lot of, uh, I actually wrote an article last year for uh, entrepreneurs. It was called, uh, I think something like family business is a blood sport. And for whatever reason, again, I, it's not something that I've gone out of my way to look for because God knows family business can be very challenging. But for whatever reason, a lot of the clients that I've had have been families <laughs> that run businesses. Right. Um, one company I've been working for, um, you know, for the last year. And then actually before them, I had a, uh, I was their coach for the company. So it's a husband and wife um, and it's a mother-in-law uh, who are on the executive team. There's a best friend there, a VP of operations. There's a cousin working there. And it, it feels like, you know, half, half their circle is somehow involved in their company. So, you know, one, one angle, maybe this is not, this is not maybe the most widely discussed subject, but when, let's say you're brought in as a consultant, right? There's one reason why outside consultants sometimes can be incredibly powerful in that situation. And the main reason is because, again, if, if you're actually a smart, well-thought-out consultant who's dealt with this sort of thing before, you come in and before you get in there, you set the ground rules. Look, it's a family. You know, I'm coming in with, let's say, the CEOs or chairman's, chairwoman's uh, approval and here's my mandate and, and nobody's going to mess with me right here's how we're going to do things and it's you know it's it's touch and go it's not like you know I'm a bull in a china shop it's that doesn't work either but if you don't set the ground rules up front you're going to get squashed real quick and you're going to get stuck in that conflict you know where uh, the, the wife accidentally let slip that she was you know doing something uh, <laughs> something racy back in the day or uh, you know, the husband kind of like what he doesn't say is like, OK, I can't I can't I can't think of running this company anymore. I want to get the hell out. You know, the VP of operations looks at you like you're the enemy number one. Um, you know, the 
the head of clinical is kind of like, who the hell is this guy <laughs> doing here? You know, no, no specific uh, companies or people, uh, you know, I'm referring to just a kind of aggregate experience. But a lot of the times that's, that's what happens. You're thrown in and you're kind of like this, you know, excuse the term, you're the turd in the water. And, every, you know, if, if, if you don't make your presence known that your mandate is clear, they're all just going to abuse you and then, you know, you'll be the, you'll be the punching bag. So I think number one, family business is something you have to be incredibly careful about. Um, I think actually I'm thinking about uh, Warren Buffett. I think uh, there's a company he bought uh, in Israel maybe four or five years ago, which was really well run by a family. So sometimes it's either, it's, it can be really polar opposites. Either it's, it's a really highly functional company, like let's say a Water, my wife works for them, right? That's, that's a company that's incredibly well run. On, on multiple, multiple levels, but it's, yeah, it's still a family company, even if it's private. And then you have, you know, a million and one stories about uh, companies going haywire because as you mentioned, there's no, either there's no succession plan or nobody wants to go along with it or too many egos in the room or, you know, the, the, the son is there for the wrong reasons and the father wants him to succeed. Anyway, it's a big, uh, big to do. So not, not to, not to dwell too much on that subject. I think, from a consulting perspective, I think it's sometimes a very unique uh, way to go in to help companies to overcome a lot of these barriers. Because if you're on the inside, almost by definition, there's not that much you can do to change the culture. So it's it's interesting that you kind of, in a way, you own the vertical, right? You, you find a way to acquire companies, but also to come in from the top and from the sides and, and really reform that. And I think that gives you tremendous leverage to do it thoughtfully and to do it the right way. So I just kind of want to bring that out. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, um, I mean, not least because you know, this is called the Commander-in-Chief Podcast, your military experience. I think that um, this very particular combination of having been in the military, but also having a, a PhD in kind of an organizational dynamics, I think it's a very, very, very interesting perspective because what you see in the army when, you know, it's a relatively rigid structure and you sort of know what's expected, everything is clear. Um, and then you go to studying how organizations can be wildly different. What, what can you share with us? I'm getting toward the people management side of things here. Um, what can you share with us that you've learned from being, um, you know, a founder, then an operator, and then an investor and, a management consultant who sees this kind of uh, very unique view from above. Well, one thing, and it, and it actually dovetails back to what we were just talking about, which is family or succession planning is consistency. Mm -hmm. um, we are, you know, I just, you talk about articles. I was just doing some work on some of the articles that we have, putting them on my LinkedIn page. Mm -hmm. And one of them was standards matter. And I wrote that for Quality Magazine. And by that, I mean, you know, policy man matters, procedures matter, standards matter. Coming from the military, we learn all about structure and hierarchy and, and everything. And then as we learn about humans, we learn about the complexities of behavior and emotions and ego and all the things that, that challenge us. But in the end, consistency matters. In, what I was thinking about as you were talking was we did a succession plan that is based on our core philosophies, how we teach management, which is very consistent, policy driven, procedure driven, mm -hmm. not in an invasive way, not like the military, 
it's got enough wiggle room built into it to allow for humans to interact with it. But we put this process in place for this company to transfer from a legacy owner 35 years to his son. And it was very, very much filled with conflict. The son and I, we butt heads. We spent two years with this client, my team and I. We flew out there uh, month in and month out for two years, got this uh, succession plan done, got everything transferred over. The day the son took over, he fired us. <laughs> this past summer, we got a telephone call from that son saying, you know, and I knew he was doing well. We've been doing, doing really well, but we decided to do things our own way. And the two things we decided to do on our own are broken and aren't working. Would you please re-engage with us and get those two things back on track with us? The point of the story is, is that being consistent and not giving in to somebody, not giving in to or going against what you know works, what you know is tried and true, what you have that's proven and being consistent will reward you time and time again. And I have so many stories about clients who have walked away from us or we have walked away from them because there was inconsistency brewing. And they have come back to us and said, okay, we want to get consistent. We want to go back to that foundation. We want to relearn that policy. We want to relearn that procedure. We want to relearn that uh, behavioral trait that you were trying to teach us. So it's consistency um, in your environment, in your area of influence for what it is that you do that will really set the stage and keep you moving in the right direction. Right. I'm really glad we're talking about consistency because it's, it's in some ways, let's zoom out for a minute, right? So a lot of the conversations that uh, we've had on this podcast with, with other guests, it's tech, it's, you know, it's a bubble, it's massive funding, it's, you know, rah, 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 PR, it's, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of hubbub, right? So what happens in that shuffle? Again, I've, I've worked in tech, I've worked in, you know, five other industries, but in, in tech in particular, you have this massive disconnect often between, okay, rah, 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 where, you know, we have to set our mission, vision, values up front. It's above the door. Uh, it's on our website. It's it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And then you, you actually work there and you're like, what the hell did these people build? Like, this is very, very far from what you say goes, how, how you treat me, right? Maybe you treat your product team really well, but you treat your finance and operations people like garbage. Right, like, hey, you squeeze the money, right? Or like, oh, produce a product, right? So in practice, what happens usually is wildly different within teams because, again, people leave bad bosses, right? You have all kinds of fluff and all kinds of things because of massive funding. Everybody wants to be there, right? So you almost, as, as a founder, you're very busy, right? You have lieutenants and the lieutenants, you, you bring them in because, you know, pedigree and then all of this kind of stuff. The result is massive systemic organizational inconsistency. And then you have to bring in, you know, uh, HR, which you, you, you know, you, let's say you don't give them enough uh, budget, you don't give them <laughs> enough leverage, you don't give them enough anything, and you expect them to do miracles, right? Or you bring in management consultants, and, oh, you know, then re redo everything, change management, da, da, da. oh, it's not working in three weeks. Right. So I just I want to give that picture because I think in, in consulting, we and 
coaching for that matter as well, we, we often see this again, whether from the HR angle or, you know, strategy or management consulting, potato, potato. We see the same kinds of stuff over and over. Massive inconsistency. The difference between what people say and what they do. And I, I kind of I always give this image. When you're at the top and let's say, you know, you're running the company, you're busy and yeah, okay, maybe you, you can't be 100%, uh, you know, integrally consistent within your own values even. Right, within all the things that you have to do. So the little bit of distance between word and deed. Imagine that goes down into the middle layer and that's times 10. So you have middle managers who's really, what are they there for? They're there as the glue. So maybe you bring them in at a certain stage of the company and they write the processes and procedures and they, they kind of make things slow down and gel. Right? But their job is to make sure this ship doesn't sink. It's, it's not like, you know, let's make sure we have the fastest ship. It's like, no, let's make sure it doesn't sink. Then you go down all the way into the lower levels of the company. And that distance is truly massive. People who are starting out their career, they quickly sniff out because they're not stupid. That this is not what is advertised. This is not at all what I was told would happen here. And that's how you lose talent. That's how you lose a lot of different things because, you know, you have rats leaving a sinking ship. So I just want to bring in bring in that image because again it's not in reference to any company whose founder or CEO I've spoken to it's just a general impression that I've had from my work experience in tech on, on multiple levels within different functions HR product management finance and operations you name it so I just I I, I really like the idea that you know when you come in you have that very clear anchor, you have a very good system and you can say, you know what? Okay. Either we're doing this the right way or we're not engaging. And you don't, you don't sort of just jump into something just because it's business. I really like this. I think it's a really undervalued and under discussed element of doing business. You have to be internally consistent and you have to be consistent in the way you treat people, the way you evaluate, let's say companies for acquisition, the way you evaluate and do diligence on potential clients and you know, the results follow. So I just want to give you kudos for, for bringing this subject up. I think it's very important. Well, thank you. And, you know, I think you probably have this experience in almost every failing company that we deal with as advisors, there's inconsistency. Mm-hmm. So, and it's inconsistency in exactly one of those places that you just outlined. So, um, in we build our programs based on identifying those inconsistencies or on finding the consistencies and building on those. Mm-hmm. We don't change things that are consistent either. Yeah. One of the things I have to struggle with is we have our own management system and we oftentimes go into an environment that has like EOS or, yeah, yeah, or something like that. Right. And, you know, the first thing some of our younger team members want to do is, well, let's migrate them to, to the IA way. And I'm like, well, well, wait a second. We have a whole company who is successful at EOS. We understand EOS. We respect EOS. Um, So how about we just build on the EOS system and let them use the semantics they're used to, the consistency they're used to, and let's build on that foundation instead of trying to create more chaos. And that's one of the things that's hard to teach also is instead of changing somebody to your way, which I think is ego Let's build on what works if that consistency is positive and moving them in the right direction. 
Exactly. I think that uh, for me, this brings up this um, observation again. Uh, you know, I've been a consultant a while as well, and, and coaching is a core part of what I do. So for me, before I do anything else, when I'm just doing, you know, my, my kind of internal due diligence, I'm getting to know everybody. Right? Yeah, it's Zoom, it's this and that. 80% of things are not spoken. 80% of communication is not verbal. And so there's, there's a lot of room for getting it wrong. But when you really pay attention, you start seeing, number one, every organization has what I think really the best way to call it is nodes, right? There are certain people within each organization that are really the pillars. They're the ones that do most of the work. They're the organizational pillars. They're the most reliable people. And they're the reason the company actually functions, usually despite massive dysfunction and inconsistency. So I think as, as a consultant and, and coach, I'm sure you can relate to this. The first thing that I do when I come in to a project is identify those people because those are going to be my best resources, the best sources of information and the people that, you know, I have to empower them. If I'm really going to be successful in a project, I have to build them up. I have to give them confidence. I have to get them promoted paid more, you know, whatever they need to feel good because they're going to be the ones that really move things according to some sort of, you know, chess game plan. So I think it's very, very important to think in those terms. Who are those pillars? Who are the people that, yeah, they already have their system. Maybe their system is inefficient or even terribly inefficient. But you know what? You have to respect the fact that they're making things run, right? So you're not looking backwards and, you know, using the whip. Oh, we're terrible. We're awful. Let's blow everything up. Doesn't work. Not going to fly. People will throw you out on your face. So whatever it is you're doing in business, it doesn't have to be consulting or coaching. Whenever you're trying to implement change, of course, communicate, over-communicate, but also don't try to just overhaul everything. Change for the sake of change does not work. Yeah, exactly. It's like technology for technology's mm -hmm. sake. It doesn't work. And too many people try to do that because they read that, you know, it's important that we change. It's important that we keep up with technology. We use the same seven-page management program today that I wrote in 1996. And it works with our data companies. It works with our construction companies. It works with our professional service companies. Mm -hmm. It works across every single industry that we do business in. And it's the same that I wrote in 1996. That's beautiful. Yeah, you see, so again, just uh, it, it's not to knock on tech. Tech has its own, you know, good things about it, bad things about it, like any other business or industry. But I, I think it's it's just very, very important to take a moment to recognize the contrast, right? Because again, tech is its own particular animal. There's a lot of fluff and Kool-Aid and, you know, massive funding rounds and, you know, branding and, and, and you know, there's employer branding, employee branding. So there, there's, it, it's often very difficult to really get to the source of truth. And tech is not the only game in town, right? There's so many other industries and businesses that make up much even larger uh, percentages of the economy. So the way that you look at those companies and how to run them well, you know, often does not involve some kind of new age benefits, right? Or uh, bashing millennials. It's, it's usually tried and true things that have worked really well, maybe in the army, maybe in other areas of business. And maybe it's not, you know, the, the, the latest and whatever, it's, it doesn't have to be featured in Harvard Business Review, 
but it works just as well, if not a lot better. So I just want to put that out there because again, the focus for a lot of our listeners, I think, is is that that extreme that tech is somehow representative of all business. It's not. No, it's not. And you know, again, we know our, our systems work and it's tried and true. Our turnover rates are low across the board, but it doesn't matter if it's in the trades, if it's in professional services, if it's in tech. The way we treat people and the way we approach just business in general has allowed for that type of foundation. And we have bowling centers that have just as low a turnover as our CPA firms. And if you think about what you know about those two environments, you would think that bowling centers are like fast food. Turnovers high and, and, and you know all the time but when you create an environment that is open and respectful to everybody from bottom to top side to side mm-hmm. you create an environment where people stay regardless no. mm-hmm. of if it's tech 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 driven manual labor driven or anything in between yeah thank you for bringing this up ryan um really excellent conversation so for every person that i speak to on this podcast i always like to ask them at the end, we, we talked about this before we hit record. Um, this is based on my book with those four conversations I believe all of us should be having, one around health, one around mental models and life skills, three around dealing with other people, and four with regard to our conversation with God of the universe. So being someone who has seen such a wide swath of life and someone who's worked in many different industries, again, for both as a founder, operator, investor, and, and Consultant as well. I think that's also a very important distinction. What can you share with us um, that comes from that place of life philosophy around any or all of those four? Yeah, that's for us. It's really easy. And and for me, it's very easy. It's I am we. And you see behind me, it says, find me, build your influence. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe that each of us has our biggest responsibility is our influence. We start influencing before we're born. When our parents found out that we were going to be born, we were already influencing lives. And we will continue to influence long after we leave, through our children, through whoever we had any interaction with during our lives. So if you think about influence and who you are today and what I when I say by I am we, I am a culmination of everybody who has influenced me, you start to realize just how important a single person's influence can be. And that could be from a smile as you walk down the street to a lesson in a classroom to an argument you have with a spouse or with a child or with a friend. Every one of those interactions is influence. And that is who we are. And when we understand that, we can be a better person for whatever we do. I don't care what you do in life, dig ditches, do accounting, do taxes, build widgets, create technology. If you understand that and you you understand what that means both to self and to everybody else, I think that life will be better and that the environments that we all go into will be positively affected and influenced by us. Right. This is a beautiful idea. Just to unpack this very quickly, and I know you have to, you have to go. Um, so number one, um, all of us have influence, regardless of our station in life, our age, our industry, wealth, any of those things. 
critical, critical point. I also mentioned this um, in a number of different facets in the book, right? There's no such thing as I am nothing, I am no one. That's just a negative script. That's something that society may, uh, you know, give us that idea, but it's not a true one. And uh, number two, um, I would say that all of us, as you mentioned, each of us is a continuum of what came before us, the people, the influences, the sources of information and everything else flowing through us, where each of us is a vessel, right? A vessel for blessing, for knowledge, for influence, for impact and, and success and so on and so forth. So it's very, very important to understand that each of us being that vessel, we, we were put here at a certain time in a certain place in a certain body and with a certain mind in order to maybe carry on the influence of other people, create our own, and then in, instill certain things in our children and disciples and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, I always go back to this idea. Um, you know, it, it comes, uh, I think, from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Um, basically, you know, every person, um, every person, basically the world can not exist without you once you're born. There's a reason why you come into the world at a certain time. So whatever the physical manifestation of that might be, that's, that's not necessarily your mission. You have to go and figure that out and you have to go and execute on it. So if you ever feel down about yourself, go help someone else because that'll instantly make you feel better. So I really appreciate you. This, this has been a tremendous discussion. I think this is really, these are things that really should be taught they are often not taught except perhaps certain elements, you know, in the military or the church or synagogue. Uh, it's, it's not the most glorious thing. It's not what we're exposed to in the media. It's not what a lot of books talk about. So I'm, 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 really, I'm really grateful to you that we've had this conversation about what I think are some of the most fundamental forces in business and in life. And uh, I thank you, Brian. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Yuri. Thanks for having me. Uh, I really appreciate it. This is great. Thank you, Brian. Take good care. Okay, you too.